This is Dare I Say, the podcast from Harper's Bazaar, where we sit in on unfiltered conversations between the most influential women of our time, women daring to make the difference we deserve. I'm your host, Olivia Wilde. In this episode, we head to Texas to talk about the fragile state of reproductive rights in the United States in 2019. Sarah Weddington was fresh out of law school when she took on a case for Roe, an anonymous young Texas woman who wanted to have a legal abortion. Sarah would go on to argue and win that case in front of the Supreme Court. It would change the course of history by legalizing abortion in many circumstances across the United States. In this episode, Sarah sits down with the new president of Planned Parenthood, Dr. Lena Wen, nearly 50 years later, in 2019. Lena is gearing up for a huge fight in her new job. At an anti-abortion rally in January, President Trump was recently introduced as the most anti-choice president in American history. His administration intends to axe crucial federal funding to family planning programs. Anti-abortion bills are being proposed across the country and the Supreme Court no longer has a pro-abortion majority. In this frank conversation, Lena and Sarah muse on Roe v. Wade's past, present, and future. How did the landmark case really go down? And how can Americans collectively work to end a public health catastrophe set to disproportionately affect low-income and vulnerable women? Lena and Sarah are fighting for our health, our lives, and our futures. They are women who dare. Sarah, it's such an honor to meet you today, too. You're an inspiration to so many of us. You represented a woman named Jane Roe. You were just 26 years old. Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to go back because it was really a group of women who were graduate students at the University of Texas. And they discovered that the health center at the University of Texas in Austin did not provide any information about contraception. So they decided they would put together a counseling effort to tell women and men who inquired about contraception. And then women came to them and said, but I'm already pregnant. I want an abortion. Where could I go? So they basically said, you know, we think the only way long-term for this to work is we've got to have somebody bring a lawsuit against the Texas law. And the Texas law was that abortion was legal only to save the life of the woman, no other exceptions. And it didn't really say what that meant. So you had a lot of doctors being afraid because they just weren't sure what they could do or not do that would keep them out of trouble. There had been other doctors in the past who had actually gone to jail. So they did the research, they started making that information available, and then they said, we really need to find somebody to file a lawsuit. And they said, would you do that? And I said, I think you should get somebody with more experience. Because at that point, I'd been out of law school a couple of years. I didn't have much federal litigation experience. 
And they said, well, how much would you charge us? And I said, oh, I'd do it for free. And they said, you are our lawyer. I I just think it's interesting. You were saying that when you were first approached about it, your first instinct of it is, well, maybe you should find somebody with more experience. And I was thinking if you're a man, (laughs) might you have had a different reaction? (laughs) Because we know... So many men, when they hear, well, hear the 10 criteria, yeah. women might, might be thinking, well, I only have eight out of 10 criteria. And the men are thinking, I've got three out of 10. I am ready to go. <laughs> right. It's not unusual in Supreme Court cases for there to be some conflicts. And one of them was a man who thought he should argue the case. And finally, I called the clerk of the Supreme Court and said, how do you decide who actually argues a case. And she said, oh, we know who's going to argue it. And I said, you do? Who's going to argue it? And she said, well, Mr. Lucas wrote us and said he would be arguing the case. Well, he had not given me a copy of that letter, and it made me so mad. I said, who decides? And they said, well, the plaintiffs. So I called all the plaintiffs because they knew me. I'd worked with them. And they said, oh, no, we want you to argue it. And then it turned out that the same day I was arguing Roe, there was a Georgia case, Doe versus Bolton. And there was a plaintiff, the attorney for the plaintiff was a woman named Margie Pitts-Haynes. And then the uh, attorney general of Texas sent a man to argue against her and meant that three out of the four people to argue, two, two people argue each case, one pro, one against, were women. And so at the Supreme Court, it was being called Women's Day. You had to fight to be the person to keep on doing the work that you were asked to do. So often, there are some people, let's say men, but some people who insist on what's theirs. But actually, all you're trying to do is to do the right thing, which is to represent the plaintiff's And to serve them in the way that you were asked to do. Well, and to win the case, because it was not just for the plaintiffs. You're really working for women all over the country because you're trying to win a right for all women. I had gone early so I could go to what's called the lawyer's lounge. It's the place for lawyers to wait while they're hoping they can get into the actual Supreme Court room And I decided I better go to the ladies' room at the last minute. And so I asked somebody where the ladies' room was. And the clerk said, well, there's not one in the lawyer's lounge. You have to go down this hallway, down these stairs, to the back of the building. And so when Sandra Day O'Connor got on the Supreme Court, she was concerned that there be a women's room. And then nothing happened. Ruth Bader Ginsburg got on the court, so she went to Sandra Day O'Connor and said, let me help. And so the two of them together started working on getting a women's room in the lawyer's lounge. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the, and every time I go back to the Supreme Court, I go to check to see. <laughs> and sure enough, a, a bit later, the janitor's closet had become the ladies' room. <laughs> it's actually the, quite amazing that it takes women in leadership to make these changes that may not, that nobody would have noticed before, but are so important for for women and for families and people. I mean, I remember actually when I had just had a baby and was called to testify to Congress and I needed a place to pump. Sure. And I, I found places. There were places within the walls of Congress to pump, but I learned that those places did not exist until Nancy Pelosi became speaker the first time. Yeah. 
because it was something that people wouldn't have thought about yeah. for nursing moms for who are working there or who are visiting our capital and yeah. and Congress. And I think it's just one more example of how there are profound changes that occur when women are in in leadership. Yeah. Texas State Attorney Jay Floyd told the worst joke in legal history at the opening of his oral argument for Roe v. Wade. He told the Supreme Court judges that it would be difficult to argue against the opposition lawyers because they were beautiful ladies. It was a historic case in more ways than one. I'm just asking you so many questions because I'm fascinated about what what it was like on that day. I mean, can you, are there certain points of the day that you particularly remember, arguments that you think resonated, and what might be some lessons that today we can learn from what you said then? I think the moments I remember most is first going over to the court, because you have this great sense of weight that what happens in this case is going to affect so many people, not just in Texas, but all over the United States. And the world, one could argue. And the world in many ways, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I remember this sense of excitement around the Supreme Court, people that didn't have tickets waiting in line, trying to get in, and there's a lot of excitement and some tension. And it must have been incredible for you to be in the state legislature in Texas at that time, too. If I go back to when we left the court that day, we didn't know if we'd won or lost. And so I went back to Austin, ran and won, and actually then would be easier than now because there were so many Republicans who were publicly pro-choice. For example, soon after that, a man from Dallas who had been mayor there, Mm -hmm. Clements, became governor, and he was pro-choice. I had had lunch sometime before that with Barry Goldwater, who was very well-known Republican, and he was pro-choice. Both the Fords, President Ford, Mrs. Ford, they were both pro-choice. And in the Texas legislature, there were not a majority, but there were a good number of the Republican legislators who were pro-choice. And now I don't think you could find five. The times have really Mm -hmm. changed, and the legislative makeup has really gone toward the right. It is something that I really struggle with, too, this idea that there are so many of those who don't want government in other aspects of our lives, but see no problem with government literally in the exam room, dictating to physicians about what it is that we can or cannot say to our patients, Mm -hmm. making decisions on behalf of our patients, taking away patients' autonomy and patient rights. And it seems contrary to American values of freedom and just the right over something as fundamental as our bodies. Mm -hmm. What do you think has changed over the years? Well, after Roe versus Wade, what I would call the religious right got very involved. And it was mostly male religious leaders who became involved in saying, no, this is wrong, we've got to stop it. There are various names you may or may not know, like Flip Benham. Flip Benham was a... He would call himself a religious leader. I never saw him in that role. And he would be out in front of the Supreme Court or in front of various institutions telling people to pick it against this terrible thing that was happening. And 
he was the one who later convinced Jane Roe to be against Roe versus Wade. It's true that Norma McCorvey, better known by her legal pseudonym Jane Roe, became anti-choice years after the Supreme Court ruling, helping to propel an anti-abortion movement in religious circles. Today, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, four states would automatically ban abortion. North Dakota, Mississippi, Louisiana, and South Dakota all have statutes in place that allow this. 21 more states have anti-abortion legislature, meaning that they would act quickly to allow abortion restrictions after a Supreme Court decision. It would be a public health catastrophe. One in three American women will be living in states where abortion is outlawed. I got involved first because of my mother. My parents and I came to the U.S. just before I turned eight. And we initially lived in Utah, which was quite different from my upbringing in Shanghai, China. And we really struggled, just like many immigrant families. My parents worked multiple jobs just to get by. And we depended on public assistance with Medicaid, with Children's Health Insurance Program. My mother, when she became pregnant with my sister, depended uh, on WIC for nutritional support. And we also depended on Planned Parenthood. My mother was a patient of Planned Parenthood. That's how I first got to know Planned Parenthood as a child, when I just knew that when she couldn't get care anywhere else, that Planned Parenthood and our health center was where she went to for her care. And then when I was a teenager and I wanted information, I knew that there was nowhere else that I would go than Planned Parenthood. I later on got involved as a volunteer, as a clinician, but I couldn't have imagined even a year ago that I would be in this role. I'm an emergency physician, and my last job was as the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. I ran our public health agency there and was in charge of health and well-being for our 620,000 residents. And it was actually through that public health angle that I came to see that the biggest public health crisis that we're facing is the threat to women's health. If Roe were overturned, if it's further eroded, we could have a situation where 25 million women, which is one in three women of reproductive age in this country, could be living in states where abortion is outlawed and banned and criminalized. To go back to these times, I mean, I remember I had a, a mentor who taught me in the emergency department, who talked about the sepsis ward in the 1960s that he worked in, and this whole area of the hospital where women would go for severe life-threatening infections and they died because of abortions that were performed in secret. And I never thought that we could go back to a time like that where thousands of women died. And yet it's 2019, and that seems real. Moderate and liberal judges are now outnumbered on the Supreme Court, thanks to the election of Brett Kavanaugh. And Roe v. Wade is in bigger jeopardy than ever in its history. President Trump has also proposed a series of changes to federal family planning grant program Title X. Under new measures, clinics that provide abortion referrals and services, along with services like pap smears and contraception, will no longer receive funding. 
it is illegal for health providers in the Title X program to tell patients how they can safely and legally access abortion. Planned Parenthood serves 41% of Title X patients in the country. It currently receives around $60 million from the program. I feel so fortunate that my family was able to benefit from exceptional care. And I was able to benefit from reproductive health care, which enabled me to pursue my wildest dreams, to come from an immigrant who came to the U.S. with $40 to our name, to becoming a physician, which is my lifelong dream, to becoming the president of Planned Parenthood. But I was only able to do that because of access to reproductive health care. And it's that fundamental freedom to determine our own life's goal. That's what we fight for every day. It's the fight for our health, the fight for our lives, and the fight for our futures. I think it's also this idea that we are further siloing, stigmatizing, and attacking one aspect of healthcare and treating it as something totally different from what it is, which is healthcare. I mean, I see how reproductive care is just siloed and treated as something completely different. And that's why politicians see it as being okay to pass laws that directly affect one aspect of healthcare and not anything else. I mean, what other medical procedure have there been over 400 laws passed in seven years that directly restrict access to it. I mean, that doesn't happen to any other aspect of healthcare. And abortion, as you know well, is a procedure that one in four American women will have in our lifetimes. It is safe, it's legal, it's, it's common, and it should be treated as exactly what it is, which is a standard medical procedure that's part of the full spectrum of reproductive healthcare. But then we're seeing reproductive healthcare writ large siloed and, and singled out too. The Trump administration is issuing their final Title X gag rule. I am forbidden from referring our patients to abortion, even if our patients are asking questions about it, even if their life is in danger. I am forbidden from doing so if I work in a clinic that accepts Title X funding, which funds for low-income women and families to receive cancer screenings, STI tests, and birth control. I mean, we're talking about something that's so unethical that the federal government, I mean, to think that the federal government could be gagging doctors and preventing us from telling patients the truth, and particularly because Title X funds for low-income families, like mine growing up, it's specifically saying that if you are wealthy and privileged, you can get information and education and access. But if you are a person in a family that's already struggling to make ends meet, you will be denied even information. And that's not happening to every aspect of healthcare. It's specifically happening to reproductive healthcare, to women's healthcare. And I see this as a public health crisis, actually as a public health catastrophe. In 2018, almost 200 bills restricting abortion were introduced in states across the United States. 28 came into law. With an anti-abortion majority in the Supreme Court, abortion rights opponents have turbocharged their efforts. But for the younger people, it is not to take for granted 
that just because it has been there since 1973 doesn't mean it'll be in place another year from now. And so we really need people to back it up. And it depends on who gets elected. And that's why participating in elections becomes so important to know what people, what their position is on reproductive issues, what how they're voting, who they're voting for, and then to really try to get them active to get pro-choice people elected to all the various offices in all the various states and for all the congressional positions because that, that's where we really, uh, that's where the key decisions are made. Just recently, Governor Andrew Cuomo had called me and said, we've been trying to pass legislation in the House, which is the Assembly in New York, and the Senate, which would guarantee that the tenor of Roe versus Wade would be the law in New York, regardless of what any other state does or what the U.S. government says. Well, except federal funding still is the bailiwick of the federal government. So I went, and there were um, two, a woman in the Senate, a woman in the House who were carrying that legislation, and the advocates, including Planned Parenthood, had been working on it for, I think, 18 years, a long time, and never could get it passed because the people in the Senate, mostly Republican men, would never pass it. So, of course, I went. And so we did get them passed. And, again, there was so much excitement because people had worked on those bills for so long. And New York was one of the places women went before Roe versus Wade. And that means that women today in the future can go to New York, even if their own, their own state where they live is not uh, open to them. So I feel very strongly, one, about the need for the states to combat all that's going on in states now. And second, how important it is for women younger than I am. I got tickled up there because someone said, you know, you are historic. <laughs> I thought, oh, I didn't. <laughs> but the truth is the generation I was with that worked so hard for all these things, we're getting tired. And so we really need younger men and women to be involved in the legislation, uh, the lobbying, the work out in front of the clinics, you know, all the different things that go into trying to keep laws that are good for women and families and prevent laws that are bad. And you're right that states are a critical backstop at this time. Really, we have to have a 50-state strategy to both repeal and fight back bad laws that are cropping up all over the place. I mean, I've lost count already. It's only February, and I've lost count. I think it's almost 200 bills that have already been introduced in legislatures around the country to restrict abortion access already. It's February, and they're doing this to prompt a challenge to Roe versus Wade. And we have to beat back all these laws. And you're right. Sometimes it feels like we're taking one step forward and two steps back because it's it's this constant grind of it's that again. It's we're fighting the same battle that we fought year after year. And we have so many battle scars to prove that we've been there. We've done it. But we still have to keep on fighting because it is about people's lives. And at the same time, I am excited that we have the opportunity not only to be on the defensive, which we need to be and have to be vigilant and keep our guard up, 
But we also have a new opportunity to go on the offensive. With this last midterm elections, I am so excited that we have a strongly pro-reproductive health, pro-choice majority in the House of Representatives. We now have 25 governors and 19 state legislatures, including DC, that are strongly in favor of women's health. And we now have an opportunity to pass proactive legislation all around the country, including what you said in New York, which is really exciting to codify Roe in state law. And part of what they did is something that I can't quite believe that we even still had on the books to change abortion from a criminal statute to the health statute. Of course, that's what it is. Abortion is a medical procedure. Reproductive health care is health care. And health care is what we safeguard as a, as a human right. So I'm glad that New York is fighting this. Um, in New Mexico, I was just speaking to some of our leaders there. And in New Mexico, they're also, I, I hope, knock on wood, um, will be passing legislation to decriminalize abortion and to specifically not criminalize physicians from performing abortions should something happen to Roe on the federal level. We're seeing states, including in Missouri, fight restrictive laws like the 72-hour waiting period that have no basis in medicine or science and really are just about politicians in the exam room. And when you say that, you're really talking about making women wait after they begin the process of getting information, of thinking to be sure they've made the right decision. You cannot go to a doctor and get the information and get an appointment and be able to have an abortion because you say you want one and you're at a good licensed clinic. Instead, you have to wait 72 hours. And I think that's just certain legislators at the urging of some of the groups that do nothing but come up with laws to make access almost impossible. And those legislators have said, okay, she has to wait 72 hours. But you see, for so many women who have left, let's say, left Texas to go to New Mexico, that means they're going to miss a day of work. They've got to worry about child care, how to get there. Not everybody has a car that works. So there are just lots. It, it's more of an impediment than just having to wait. And the reason in Texas, most doctors at the time of Roe versus Wade were very much in my favor and really helped me was because they had been involved with Parkland Hospital, where John F. Kennedy was taken when he was shot in Dallas. And Parkland Hospital had a ward called the IOB Ward. It was the Infected Obstetrics Ward. Mm. And it was where women who came after self-abortion or abortion done pitifully or where they were their body was in trauma and the doctors who at the time of Roe were in medical practice in Texas were the interns and the residents and the young doctors who tried to save the lives of those women and so they really had a deep understanding that women will make their own decisions and it's better to give them a place where the people are really trained well and so I think one of the things that's happened since Roe so long ago now is that a lot of doctors don't really think about what it was like when abortion was illegal. Because that's not going to stop women, but it is going to make it a lot harder for them. And now we're back to doing the same thing we were doing before Roe, and that is trying to raise money to get women to wherever they need to go. For example, California 
was more open to abortion than other places. So there was an American Airlines flight from Dallas, Texas, um, every Thursday with, I think, 10 seats reserved for women who needed to go to California for medical care. And then they would come back on Sunday, so they'd be at work on Monday. But we had to help raise the money for those women, for transportation, for the procedure. So we're back to trying to raise money again. When I was talking to our our site director in South Dakota, I was hearing about what their 72-hour waiting period involved, which requires that the patient come in on Monday, see the doctor, and then come back again on Thursday and see the same doctor. And because that doctor flies in every week herself from Minnesota, if the doctor's flight is delayed because of weather or if something happened to that doctor because maybe she has the flu, or if the patient can't get childcare, time off from work, or raise the funds to drive hundreds of miles potentially to the one place in South Dakota, then she misses her window and it's too late. And I think about those hurdles that people go through, and it's it's so demeaning to women. It's basically saying, oh, well, you don't know what you're doing. So the state is going to force you to listen to medically inaccurate things, force you to view an ultrasound that you didn't want, make you wait three days because we don't trust you. We think that you are incapable of making a personal medical decision for yourself. And all of this, again, has just literally nothing to do with medical practice. We are also, and you, I mean, you know this well, with admitting privileges, it also makes no sense. I'm an emergency physician. I treat patients who come in all the time to the ER from any doctor. It's my duty, my, it's my legal responsibility, as well as ethical responsibility to treat every patient. It just makes no sense that... There are requirements for doctors to get admitting admitting privileges in a nearby hospital just so that they can perform a medical procedure that's safer than having wisdom teeth removal. And that's what's happening in this world, that there are so many people restricting abortion access, but they're able to get away with it because people see abortion as something differently than the medical care that it is. And I am optimistic, though, that the new generation of medical students, physicians are are energized. They also do understand that we are once again at a time when our patients' lives are at risk and there's something that we can do about it. Brett Kavanaugh kept his position on abortion rights vague at his confirmation hearings last year. He told senators that he thought the Roe v. Wade ruling was an important precedent. His hazy position is now coming into focus. In February, he voted in favor of a draconian anti-abortion law in Louisiana. That legislation will have the net effect of putting two of the three abortion clinics in the state out of business. I also see it as the Supreme Court chipping away at Roe versus Wade, even if it's not outright overturning it. So with every case that's heard, with especially now with Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, it's possible that rulings could come that continue to erode the protections of Roe versus Wade. 
for example, on prohibiting Planned Parenthood clinics from being able to serve our patients who are on Medicaid. Those are cases that keep on coming up to the Supreme Court. And if it's granted, it means that our patients who want to choose us aren't able to come to Planned Parenthood for their care. And that's crazy. I mean, it's it's not as if people have great access to care around the country. Actually, for so many of our patients, we are their only source of health care. So what sense does it make for patients who depend on Medicaid, who often don't have another place to get health care, to now not be allowed to come to Planned Parenthood, where they would get their cancer screenings, STI tests, birth control. I mean, it's there are so many cases like that that continue to chip away ultimately at patients' ability to access reproductive health care. And that's what I'm extremely worried about. We've seen the consequences. We've seen that when safety net clinics close, that there aren't nearly enough clinics for women, men, youth, patients, LGBTQ people to get care. And so they go without. And when they go without care, when those clinics close, we know tens of thousands of people just literally get no health care. STI rates increase, unintended pregnancy rates increase. That's the consequence. That's the public health consequence for which we have unequivocal data. We know that patients who are privileged will always find a way to get care. They did pre-row, they will once again, they, uh, they do now. And our job is to make sure that all people have access to the healthcare that they want and need. And we are working with all of our affiliates, our health centers, our partners around the country to look at every option for service delivery. There are options that we're looking into, including with mobile clinics. And there are options with telemedicine. There are options with transporting people and providers so that women and our patients are able to get access to care. And we're spending a lot of our time and efforts thinking about contingency planning. I mean, to me, this is no different than in in public health and contingency planning for an epidemic or contingency planning for a hurricane, except for one major difference, which is that those are disasters that are natural disasters. This is an entirely a man-made disaster. If we didn't have these problems, I think about where would we be investing these resources instead? At a time when maternal mortality continues to increase, at a time when we see profound disparities in healthcare with cancer rates that are very different um, with depending on where you happen to be born and what color and what race you are. And I mean, I think about all the investments that we could be making to improve people's health if we didn't have to spend so much of our time fighting these laws that we've been fighting for decades upon decades. This episode was produced by Steph at Edit Audio. To find out more about our conversation, check out our show notes at harpersbazaar.com forward slash dare I say podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we sit down with Laverne Cox and Rosario Dawson to talk about inclusivity, intersectionality, and how we can bring different generations together to stand up for women's rights.